I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening. I'm Kamila Shamsi, and I wish I were the LRB bookshop with at least some of you in person. But as you're all aware, changing circumstances made it prudent to shift things online. So I'm at home. Abdul Razak is at the LRB offices, and all of you are wherever you are. And wherever that is, welcome. Um, it gives me the greatest of pleasure to say the next sentence. Abdul Razak Gurna is this year's Nobel Laureate in Literature. For those of us who've been reading his work for years with an admiration that frequently tips into astonishment, the announcement of the Nobel was a moment of kindness from the universe, reminding us that even in bleak times, there are these moments of grace. In that, it was a very Gurna-esque moment. Um, we'll be talking about kindness and grace and bleak times, among other things, in a moment. Uh, but first, let me remind you that Christmas is coming and you haven't bought gifts for everyone you should, and that includes yourself. Um, and so you really do need to procure the Abdul Razak Gurna backlist, um, which includes a number of really wonderful novels. There's Paradise, which was shortlisted for the Booker and the Whitbread Prize, By the Sea, which was longlisted for the Booker and shortlisted for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Um, and Desertion, which was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. His novels also include Gravel Heart and Afterlives, um, which I'm particularly mentioning because they're my two favorites and I get to do that. Um, Afterlives is the most recent of Abdul Razak's novels and was published last year. Um, and of course, you can buy them from the LRB bookstore in person and online. Uh, Abdul Razak, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for that very kind introduction as well. Thank you. Um, I wonder whether you would do us the kindness of starting us off with um, a reading from Afterlife so we can we can begin with uh, the voice of your fiction before we move to your other voice. Of course, yeah. Uh, so this is uh, from Afterlife. In, strangely enough, this is the first thing I wrote uh, in, in writing this novel. Um, Although it actually not ends up being on page 133, but that's how it goes. That's the, you know, the kind of the pleasure and the beauty of, mm -hmm. uh, of writing, really, that uh, mm. finding, finding the place where things actually fit better. This is a moment when uh, one of the figures uh, in the novel, Hamza, is uh, <clears throat> returning to a town that he used to live in, but a long time for. In the meantime, he'd been through the experience of the war. This is the first world war in East Africa and brutalized by those experiences and in a way traumatized perhaps I should say, rather than brutalized or maybe both, but in any case traumatized. And so he's arriving in, uh, in this town. We don't know very, uh, very much of his history at this point, but, um, but anyway, here it is. Their boat rounded the breakwater in evening twilight 
and then Ahoda ordered the sail lowered as he made a cautious approach into harbour. The tide was out, and he was not sure of the channels, he said. It was after the Kaskazi monsoon, and in the period before the winds and currents turned southeasterly. Heavy currents at that time of year sometimes shifted the channel. His boat was heavily laden, and he didn't want to get stuck on a sandbank or to hit something on the bottom. In the end, after debating the matter with his crew, he thought it was too dark to approach the quay in safety. So they dropped anchor in shallow water and waited for morning. There were lights on ashore, and a few people moving about on the quay. Their elongated shadows stretched out ahead and behind them in the gloom. Beyond the quayside warehouses, I beg your pardon, beyond the quayside warehouses, the town sprawled and the sky was amber from the glow of the setting sun. Further to the right, the dimly lit shoreline road shaped away towards the headland, which after a while ran out to the darkness of the country. Hamza remembered that from the time before, how the road ran past the house where he lived, and how then it narrowed down to the tight aperture that opened out into the interior. Out to sea, the sky filled with stars, and a huge moon began to rise, illuminating the heaving water beyond the breakwater and the frothing crest of the reef in the distance. As the moon rose higher, it submerged the whole world in its unearthly glow, turning the warehouses and the quayside and the boats tied up alongside into insubstantial silhouettes of themselves. Maybe that's enough for now. Thank you. Um, I'm going to, to return more specifically to Afterlives, but I want to actually talk about something you said in that introduction where you mentioned the pleasure of writing. Um, and in fact, the opening sentence of your Nobel speech that you, you made quite recently was, writing has always been a pleasure. Um, and you go on from that very quickly to talk about reading being a pleasure, because, of course, I don't think there's anyone who writes as pleasure without first being a great reader. Um, and I was just wondering, when you were growing up with your earliest memories of reading, what were you reading in what languages? Um, at what point did reading become significant in your life? Mm, I don't know if I can, if I can be precise, but... Um... In the first instance, I know that uh, we used to hear a lot of stories um, as children, because as children, you you are the property of the, uh, as it were, the females of the family. Um, so, you know, wherever they were, you were allowed to sit with them um, in a way that you weren't allowed after a certain age, kind of kicked out of the, the company of women, as you were. So I do remember that the first stories I heard were stories that were being told, um, not necessarily to us, but that were being told between people and so on. So that was one of the stories. But of course, the most significant kind of story that I read when I was growing up was uh, from the Quran, which is full of stories. Um, and um, 
and not only was it because of the um, the the meaning and the injunctions and the, what you should do and what you shouldn't do that was that would kind of stick as it were, but it was the the commentary that ran alongside as the teacher explained the meaning of this and then would speak about the experiences of the of the prophet of his followers and so um, and so these were the really the earliest stories that I heard. And some of these things stick forever, when I'm sure the same thing happens growing up in a Christian uh, environment that, you know, the stories stay. My own reading, <clears throat> a voluntary reading, was um, um, really, truly, completely haphazard. What was in the school library cupboard kind of thing. Um, and most of the things that were available to us as children uh, in the school were abridged versions, which were done by the um, the colonial um, educational trust in Nairobi for for East African schools and students, and these were mostly abridged versions of British novels. Um, you know, kidnapped. Uh, I can't remember the kidnapped has stuck for years because it was obviously one of the more pleasurable experiences <laughs> of reading. So much of the early reading was uh, was that these little slim little um, books, uh, the English reading that is in Swahili. There was always Alfulele Olela. It was translated into Swahili. But in any case, these stories are already present in the oral transmission. So the stories I referred to as hearing when I was a little boy and so on, many of them would have been versions of those stories that appear in books told by people who were not literate themselves. So they, they hadn't read these stories. These stories they had received through some other form of transmission. There's a great variety of uh, these stories. Not all of them are stories you'll find in the Arabian Nights or the uh, Thousand and One Nights. Some of them are versions. Some of them are you know, kind of <laughs> people take liberties and do what they like with them. Or some of them are not even there. They're other people's stories. But stories were present all the time in one form or another. And it took me a long time to understand, actually. It was through the, through the time when I was writing Paradise that I really began to understand that stories and the telling of stories is also a way uh, of uh, describing the world you live in. It isn't, it isn't an archival process. It isn't a process of retrieving something that you want to pass on, you know, Winnie the Pooh kind of thing, um, that you want to pass on to your children. But in certain circumstances, or perhaps in more than these circumstances that I'm familiar with, Stories and telling stories is, is a way of describing the world you live in and how you understand it. That's why I mentioned the Quran, you see, and the way the way that for for many people who, or perhaps many people who grow up as Muslims, but again, many people presumably who grow up as Hindus or grow up as Christians or whatever it might be, uh, those stories are not just stories of religion. They're stories about the world and how you understand it and how you live in it and what's right and what's wrong in it you know so i don't know i've given you a, a rambling answer but i think i've kind no, of covered no. the question <laughs> um, you have and of course it always leads to, to more questions and, and one of which is is whether you were aware of these two languages Swahili and english having sort of of you having a different relationship to them was one a more intimate language or is that a sort of facile way to try and 
No, I think it was, uh, I didn't have a consciousness of, of, mm -hmm. of choice, as you were, or consciousness mm -hmm. of a decision needed, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I do know that uh, what I described in um, what you started with and what I described in my in my uh, reflections on writing uh, is that it was in the English class that I would find this pleasure of writing rather than in the Swahili class. And this is peculiar because I didn't speak English, um, really. We, we all kind of just taught like in the way that many uh, school children, I suppose, in many countries are told different languages. You don't have the fluency and the kind of intimacy to, to write really, in, I don't think, uh, until maybe a much later age. But from an early, early age, I, I could, from the age of maybe eight or nine, I could, when somebody asked me to write in English, I could. You know, it just happened. It is and a... Uh, Please go. No, go. Um, I was going to say, it's, it's a sort of curious experience that, that many of us in the world have had, where we grew up in one place reading in English and reading primarily the literature of England because of the colonial education. Um, and having inhabited a sort of England of the imagination or fiction, you then come to the country itself. Um, and, you know, in, um, in um, Gravelheart, we have the young Celine who comes to London and he's walking through these streets and he's seeing where Charles Dickens lived and wrote in these places that he has known through fiction sort of, you know, come into life. And, and so you grew up with English literature and then you you came to England um, first as a refugee. You were very young at the time. You were 18 or 19, weren't you? I was 18. 18. Um, can, you, can, you, can you talk a little about that that experience of arrival here? And, and I will say this. I was reading By the Sea, which starts with a man arriving at Gatwick and, and claiming asylum. And I first read that book when it was first published 20 years ago. Um, and at the time, I remember being so struck by the, the racism of the immigration official. And, to, and it should be said, 20 years ago, I wasn't living here yet, and I didn't know very much about asylum seeking and refugee or, or anything like that. And, and um, now what strikes me is it all seemed, for all the, the racism of that individual, it seemed easy almost compared to what we know people face now when they attempt to to come and, and face asylum. So I wonder if you could just talk about your experience in coming here and oh, then what it has been to live here through the years watching the changes. It's terrible uh, the way that it doesn't seem to diminish. People often ask the question, do you think things have changed? I'm sure you mm -hmm. get asked this question as well. Mm and you want to say, yes, things have changed. In a way, they have. But what hasn't changed is the way um, the, the authority, as it were, the government and its institutions uh, treat people, people like uh, the ones we are seeing now. The target changes. The target of who, who it is that's the problem changes. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me the attitude remains always like that, some kind of frenzied, panic-stricken, hateful uh, narrative of um, um, representing people in danger, people 
who are uh, escaping violence or war, or even just poverty, criminalizing them, using a language that criminalizing them and, and, and putting them in detention centers and whatever. It's, as I've been saying again and again, really throughout this, as people ask me this, it's inhumane. There's something inhumane, something wrong about this. When we first came here, when I say we, because my brother and I came together, we didn't know. You see, you don't understand what's going on. You don't even understand hatred. You don't understand uh, the, the dislike. Quite a lot of the, I'm quite sure, quite a lot of the young people who are now taking risks, which are almost stupid, certainly reckless with their lives, they don't always understand how disliked they are by the people amongst whom they want to go and live. Not only that, they don't always, I think, understand what it is that they're leaving behind and what they're losing. But that's a different issue. So it's hard, to, it's hard for me to always understand how um, uh, Europe has gone through its own refugee crisis not so long ago. Not so long ago at all, 60, 70 years ago. Many of the people who are now uh, um, you know, alive and well, or like me, in their 70s or 60s, have, will have lived through those things, will have been themselves, perhaps, uh, refugees or children of refugees. How can memory be so short, you wonder? So I guess this is, um, this is something that constantly surprises me, how Yes, things are getting better. Yes, but suddenly they're not better again. Suddenly, it seems the same old um, restrictions and sanctions and laws can be applied to another group of people now. The same language can now be used to speak of other people as, um, you know, whatever. I don't want to repeat these words. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't really think the experience we went through were that difficult compared to the risk to life that you see now. Uh, but then to some extent, it's because the world has got more violent as well uh, than it was then. And there are more people who are uh, both at risk, but also more mobile. People seem to be able to move now. Um, we have the internet, we have uh, mobile phones, people seem to be able to speak to each other. Where are you? Come here, come join me, come find me, that kind of thing. I don't, I don't know if this generates um, some kind of uh, dynamic, as it were, that uh, encourages movement. I don't really know. But I'm not sure if there's an improvement, in short. In that, that opening scene, the immigration official is, is really berating this man for having come to seek asylum, and, and there's this beautiful line um, which I wanted to spray paint on the Home Office, which, said, which is just this man's response internally is, why was it immoral to want to live better and in safety? Um, you know, just very straightforward, cutting through um, to the heart of him. Um, this is what I mean about using that language of uh, criminalizing, because mm -hmm. And, you know, the, it used to be the phrase uh, at that time when I was writing that book, which the phrase which was resounding was that these are not refugees, these are economic migrants. Mm. 
as if this is somehow uh, immoral to be an economic migrant or to want a better life. So that, that's where that sentence comes from. Mm. Um, I'm going to move us forward to afterlives, but I may move us back again. Um, when you were reading that bit in the, in the beginning and you were, were talking of, of how, how a novel forms, um, and I'm always really interested in that. And, and with afterlives, there are these different stories that, that take precedence and then braid together in, in a beautiful way. Um, and I did, as I was reading it, wonder which, which came first. Could you talk about the origins and, and how the story in these different lives in that novel came together in your mind? Yeah, well, I had this, I had this uh, image as well, this idea um, of that arrival that I just read there. That's what I began writing about. And often writing, uh, for me, uh, has that. You know, I have a picture, I have a, uh, an image of something. But behind that, there is also, you know, a thought and whatever. But you have to begin somewhere. <laughs> So if, it, if there is a kind of a, a beautiful or an attractive or arresting image, that's a good place to start. Um, but then as you begin thinking, then you think, no, 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 no. Uh, no, maybe I'll start somewhere else and, and then arrive at that. Um, the same is true of uh, Paradise. The final scene of Paradise is the... Uh, the uh, recruiting drive, and uh, the the young man whose we, whose life we've been following is witnessing that, and he decides to join up. Actually, that was the first thing I wrote. Paradise, that scene of him joining up. Um, but then after I was doing other things, and then after a while I was thinking, well, how do we get to? How did he get there? How did he get to that point where he he wants to join up, join up, join the uh, German army? Um, so then I wrote, the, as it were, the backstory, if you see what I mean, although it wasn't really a backstory because I had to understand a lot of things to do that. And for a long time I was thinking, so then what happened to that person after he joined? So it took me from 1994 till um, 2017 or something like that. Uh, I don't know how many years that is, but it's like 2030 or something like that. Before I could feel I'm ready now to write about that what happened to that uh, young man. But in the meantime, other thoughts had come. So then I wrote a story because I, because I thought he could not possibly have been the only person who was caught in this way. So we don't need to write a sequel. I don't need to write a sequel to Paradise. I will imagine the life of somebody who might have been just like him, um, but maybe whose life would have been different. And so that opens that gives me the liberty to do other fictional stuff <laughs> rather than uh, worry about everybody. So, um, so that's why I wanted, I began there with saying he returns to the town where he had initially, where we had last abandoned him. And I decided that, no, I wanted to do something else. So, so that's, but that's the pleasure of, of writing really that you, um, you know, there's um, a place to go. It's wonderful when you're in that position when you're writing, instead of being, you know, tearing your hair and thinking, well, now what am I going to do next? But you know, you know where you're going with this. But also, you want to find um, 
you know, a, a structure that will fill it out, will make it more true or more various, uh, will allow you to explore other issues. So, and that's what I was doing. By which time, of course, I knew a great deal more about the war uh, than I did when I was writing Paradise. I knew I wanted to write about the war, but I didn't know enough. But time allowed me to read about things and reflect on things. And then a time comes when it's right to do it. So. And you've also spoken of your, um, of the idea of refusing a simple history that's constructed in the immediate aftermath of events. Um, you know, sort of, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, this is the winners and losers, and this is how it happened. And, and, and particularly as, as I was reading the, the sort of stories of um, Ilyas and Hamza, I, I did think of that as well. Um, you know, this, the, the story of the Askari, basically the, the African who's joining the colonial forces, that there are, there are s certain ways that are so easier ways to try and almost so dismissively talk about characters like that. And I thought what you did with them was just really profoundly moving, actually. Um, but you. but the but the other character I, I, I love in this is a young girl who we meet, um, Afia. Um, when people talk about your writing, one of the words that often comes up is dislocation. And it's usually said in the context of leaving one country and moving to a radically other country, which is dissimilar in all kinds of ways. Um, and one of the things that I, I I loved so much in her story was she lives somewhere very unhappily and then she is moved to a happier place. And then her dislocation is that she's then moved back to the that original home, um, which she thought she'd let forever. And and that is also a form of dislocation. And I wondered whether you think it's overstating things to say that her experience of rupture and dislocation is as great as those of others of your characters who, who actually you know, move countries and continents. Without, well, yeah, without question. Without question, uh, not only her, of course, but her in particular, mm -hmm. um, I wanted um, her to um, be, in a very important way, somebody who is the kind of calm core center mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. That she's, in a sense, an abused uh, girl. Not abused in, in well, if you say abused these days, everybody assumes it's sexual but abused in the sense of being denied fulfillment in, mm. in quite simple ways that uh, is not allowed to be a, a, a proper person and that she finds this and as she finds this and grows quietly. I wanted that quietness of her presence to be there throughout the novel. So Afia means health, wellness. Uh, and so both for her and for Hamza, I wanted them to be people who suffer trauma, which we all do, of course, in one form or another, and then retrieve themselves in some way. And of course, how can you write a novel without a little bit of a love affair somewhere in the middle there? And so that they fall in love and they become, in some sense, uh, 
a, the core of an idea which you have already remarked on. That out um, of all kinds of difficulties, kindness can come. And therefore people can learn to live and make life. So this is why she and Hamza are important. They both go through various difficulties. Mm. Uh, and the idea is that it's still possible to find ways in modest, you know, humble ways to, to make a life. Mm. So she was so important in that way, quietly. And the word kindness is one that I do associate with, with so many of your characters and, and tenderness as well. Um, and you've spoken about wanting to preserve, among other things, the tenderness of the world um, you grew up in. And, and I did realize reading that, that because you do make me cry in every one of your books. And in, in, in you know, that you made do. me laugh and when you, you really do it. Um, and, and I realized that it is always in these moments of tenderness that occur. Um, and, you know, in, in Afterlives, the other character who shows great kindness and tenderness is, is Khalifa. Um, you know, so it comes in, in all these different moments and the ending of the book, which you won't give away, also, you know, invokes it. Um, and obviously, you can find tenderness anywhere in the world. Um, but I wonder whether for you it is a quality associated with a particular time and place. Um, or are there, do you feel that there are, there are spaces and times where, where tenderness is less regarded or less, um, there's less weight given to it, um, to its construction, to people possessing it? Yeah, I guess I do think that, but I, I may be wrong, uh, mm. but I do think that people, uh, <clears throat> People who are modest and humble and small in stature, mm -hmm. without great, um, you know, bombastic language and so on. Generally speaking, that, that to me is a signal that uh, that they are capable of hearing others mm -hmm. uh, or listening to others. I think the louder people talk, the more they make these kind of noises about their powerfulness and so on. That you know both their ears and their eyes are hardened. This is how it seems to me. Um, and that when they speak, it could be that they're kind to their dogs or kind to their, you know, lovers or kind to their children. But, you know, there's a certain kind of hardness of language, hardness of look uh, and hardness, it seems to me, goes with a kind of hardness of heart as well. And I do think, and I could be sentimentalizing here, but I don't believe so. I do. I, I do think that people, when they themselves uh, have to cope and suffer and so on, and I don't mean suffer in some big deal way, like you know, um, you know, um, the torments and so on, but just a regular way in which people suffer uh, in life. I think they learn kindness because that's how you do it. You do it because you suffer. You see somebody else suffering. You help each other. So I do associate it with certain conditions, I guess. And I don't necessarily mean poor people. I mean people who have this sensitivity and sensibility to be aware uh, of their suffering and of other people's suffering, and therefore the need to offer succor and kindness. That's, yeah, so I do have an idea yeah. of uh, who, who is capable and who is not.
Um, I have a question now, Virudak, that I've been wanting to ask you for about 20 years, and I always feel a little embarrassed that it's a slightly silly question, but I'm going to ask it. And it, it, it is to do with a moment of, of tenderness. Um, in your novel By the Sea, there is a man who collapses, he has a stroke, he collapses, and the only person there to witness it is his gardener, um, who calls out for help and then, and then comes and holds the man um, as he's dying, and, and he's crying, the, the gardener as he's crying. And what struck me about this is that the gardener, who only appears for half a page and is not really relevant to plot as such, um, his name is Abdul Razak. And I remember when I first read this thinking, you never see writers put their own name, give their own names to a character. And so I just wondered about that. It's it's not a profound question, but it is a, it is a moment of curiosity. But also there is something behind that, which is I later thought, well, maybe if you're a writer named John, you'll have a John in a novel and no one would particularly notice. Um, and it's also to do with, I think, if you grew up reading English literature, there are certain kinds of names that are less likely to appear. I mean, I've never seen the name Carmilla in a novel, and I think I might feel a bit strange if I encountered it in a piece of fiction. So I just wondered if you remembered anything about that moment of deciding to give this gardener who appears for half a page your name. Yeah, of course I remember. Um, mm. Yeah, um, it was a it was a totally imagined garden. Mm. Um, although I had been reading uh, a little bit about uh, Conrad's experiences in Malay in Malaya as it then was, um, and hearing about that one of his his employers was um, this um, very successful uh, Arab merchant um, and how in Conrad's writing this figure does not appear even in his memoirs uh, he doesn't appear I think in some ways as if he doesn't want to write about that he actually worked for this Arab merchant that he was a captain of one of his one of his ships and so on I began to think about this Arab merchant or rather reading about him and that he lived in this you know, uh, grandiose uh, estate and so on. So it's out of that really that I imagine that estate and and where he originally came from, which was Iraq and so on. And I love gardeners. I don't know if you've noticed this in in uh, in reading, but in several of my novels, I have gardeners uh, doing things. And also, generally speaking, if you think about after lives, there's the carpenter. Mm -hmm. I have people who do things, who who make things. And gardeners seem to me to be people like that, people who who bring things to life. I love gardening myself, um, and people who bring things to life. So there he was. I had this guy who's the only person who actually hears this um, crash, and rushes, um, and comes over there. And I thought, that's me. I did that. <laughs> <laughs> I was the one. I was the one who rushed up those steps. And held him in my arms and yeah. wept with him. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, let me put my name. Glad you like that. Yeah, I like it very much. Maybe one day you'll put my name in a novel, and then I'll see. <laughs> you put your own name in a novel. <laughs> no, I would rather you did it. But if you want, I will. <laughs> um, the gardener and many of your locations are many of the places. You, much of what you write about um, is in Zanzibar, which is somewhere you left at 18. Um, and I'm 
I'm interested because it, I mean, it does have a particular re resonance for me about the way the kind of force that childhood and those childhood memories um, exert on a writer. Um, and it, it's almost as though if you, if you spent your childhood in a place, you can then spend decades and decades somewhere else. And yet that well is so much deeper um, when it comes to, to your childhood location. I wonder whether, whether you feel that way as well. I didn't, uh, yeah, uh, quite evidently so, because mm -hmm. of the way in which I can't escape the subject. Um, mm -hmm. It's not without trying. It's not mm -hmm. um, that I'm constantly going back there because I w want to, in a way, but it's mm -hmm. just, mm -hmm. that's how it goes. When I start mm -hmm. writing, and that's where I end up. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, well, I'm sure there's something to do with that. I mean, um, you know, that uh, childhood memories remain uh, powerful, but I wasn't exactly a child, of course, 18 is, I would like to say, is not a child. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're already, um, yeah. in many ways, uh, um, formed, as it were. Yeah. But also many of many of these things came back to me, and this is the, the beauty of, of writing, I think, that writing is not always what is immediately available to you at the time of writing. Yeah. But what you reflect on and what you you know dredge out of things that you think you perhaps understood before, not only because you think, but because you read, because you hear other people's stories. So I don't just write about myself. You hear other people's stories, you see how you know your insight, as it were, or your understanding gives you an insight, I should put it like that, your understanding because you've got some experience comparable gives you insight into other people's stories. And so the world expands in this way. I mean, your, your imaginative world expands in this way. So it's not really about being a child in Zanzibar anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll tell you, for example, you ask, uh, you mentioned by the sea a couple of times. Uh, although by the sea um, inhabits Zanzibar in a variety of ways, it also inhabits a lot of other places as we've been talking, Malaya, for example. Mm -hmm. But one of the triggers for it for me was watching the arrival of uh, a plane load of Afghanis. This was before, before uh, 2011, before the American and the British intervention, uh, where a plane <clears throat> was hijacked, which was traveling from, flying from Kabul to Herat. Uh, and the hijackers forced it to, in the end, various stops, in the end, to Stansted. Somehow the other had to stop in Rome to refuel or whatever. But, and out of this, out of this plane, which was a smallish plane, a hundred people on it or something like that, there all these Afghanis who are traveling home, as it were, from Kabul to Herat. So they're not dressed for Stansted. They're not dressed for England or London or something. They're just going home, and they travel down. You know, they, they you know they step down, whatever. And amongst these guys, there's a one guy with a beard which is two foot long, and so. The next day, everybody on that flight asks for asylum. I think, what would that guy? That guy who's in his sixties, why does he want to ask for asylum here? Why doesn't he ask to be transported back to Herat so he can be with his family? Well, maybe at any stage in your life, the moment comes where you think, I want a new life. Mm -hmm. 
So that's nothing to do with childhood. That's just simply being able to, to as you were, engage with um, with uh, another another person's experience. And anyway, so yeah, sure. Zanzibar means a great deal to me, and I can't I can't just not think about it. But I think thinking about it is also uh, involved in um, inveigling stories of uh, other people that I read about from everywhere. And I know you know what I mean, because I know you are also involved and interested in uh, in doing work with uh, what's happening to people who are refugees now and that sort of thing. We are horribly running to the end of the time when I'm allowed to speak to you alone and have to hand you over. I did want to ask you about one thing that happened when you when you got the Nobel um, and of course, you know, it's in all the newspapers and the media and all that. And I was struck by something because I know you've lived here for over 50 years. Um, but I was struck by the fact that the coverage in Britain referred to you as an African writer, which of course you are, um, but then failed to also say you're a British writer. There would be this sort of thing, he has lived in Britain for over 50 years. Um, but there was this, I mean, I felt quite peeved about it. Um, about this refusal to simply say, for the British press to say, I mean, not, I, I didn't expect them to say, here's one of ours, but I, I, you know, that subtext would have been nice after the person has been here 50 years. And I wonder whether that was something that, that struck you, whether I'm just being peeved and you're not. Well, it, it yeah. did, uh, it, it kind of struck me as an afterthought, not as an immediate thought. Um, and you had other things to think about immediately, like winning the Nobel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even have time to think about anything. Because, <laughs> because uh, hardly taking the news in. And so, mm. But anyway, yeah, it did, I suppose, as an afterthought, it, I did think, well, mm. well, maybe I could have heard something. Because I tell you what, I did hear something from the, I had an email from the president of Tanzania who's never been in touch with me about anything, right. about anything yeah. whatsoever, mm -hmm. and never probably ever will be again. Right. <laughs> but she sent greetings. And the president of Zanzibar wanted to do an interview. So, so I thought, uh, yeah, I suppose that's an afterthought. I thought maybe I might hear something from somebody, but I wasn't I wasn't sitting there with bated breath as we're waiting to hear it. No, but we are to understand that neither the prime minister nor the queen has congratulated well, I wouldn't expect the, the Queen's far too busy with um, other things. And, um, and so it's to write these letters I, for I mean, the result. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It could also be because of the way that the um, Africans um, just embraced that uh, award so fully. Um, so many people in Africa, so many everywhere, just embraced it so fully. I can't tell you. Um, that maybe that made it seem like, well, it's their thing. I don't know. A thing can be many people's things, but all right. Um, yeah. We will, um, we will wait for, I'm sure thought... someone at the palace is, is listening into this conversation and, and oh, well, letters for you drafted right now. Um, but I'm going to move us to audience questions. And if we have time, I might stick yeah. in one or two of my own, but so here's one from Marina Sophia. Is it ever possible for your characters to return to their home country successfully? Um, or are they idealizing their past? I'm thinking of admiring silence, for example. Yeah, um, I guess so. 
I mean, my brother has returned, uh, mm -hmm. for example. Many people, mm -hmm. I mean, he's now back in England because he's unwell for, and he got trapped by COVID. But he returned quite happily, and many people do return, and I think return is possible. Um, when, but admiring silence is not about returning, really. Mm -hmm. Not really. Uh, what I mean is, it, it is about also how lives get torn or um, fractured and made difficult and get transformed. So if you're transformed, you can't just return. Uh, and so, re re especially if you've, uh, you've got incomplete things to do. I don't think it's impossible, but I do think it's perhaps very difficult to do it. Well, I mean, I, I like that it's phrased, is it ever possible for your characters to return to their home? So it's not just anyone, but do you write the character? You know, is there something in your writing of these characters? This character, can my characters ever return? Okay. Your characters to return. If my characters are just people. I don't know. I don't, I don't uh, refuse them permission. Uh, but, you know, the logic of how you think of somebody as you're writing, uh, you, you think you have an idea. The logic is that particular person with that particular history. How would he manage or she manage if she returned? Um, I do think there is uh, a, a difficult migrant people make such a huge investment to migrate is a huge investment um, and un unless and until that investment is totally productive and fruitful and whatever um, then it, you know people don't think about returning you return when you know you've somehow sorted things out by which time it's too late to return because you've already built a life elsewhere. Yeah. So I do think this is a kind of bind, as it were. Mm. But it may be possible. I don't know. Do you know anybody who's returned? Um, yes, but, you know, as you say, but they're not returning to the lives they had before. They're, sure. you know, but you're returning to, you're, yeah, to a place, but... Uh, sometimes it's actually it's actually uh, I can think of several examples of people who did not return exactly, but who found like a substitute place. Um, so instead of returning to oh I don't know um, Ghana, moved to Jamaica, or instead of going not necessarily to the West as it were, not necessarily to the flesh pots as it were, mm. but mm. you know move somewhere else, which is mm. sort of like a, a, a a displacement of home because home is more problematic. Mm. Yeah. Um, here's one from Justin Watson. Do you see your writing as creatively political? Yes, I do, uh, but not in a way that is uh, platformish. You know, I don't, I don't advocate in the sense of saying let's do this, let's do that. Uh, although I don't necessarily say people shouldn't do that. Everyone has a choice to write how they like. Uh, but I see it as political in the sense that I understand history politically, for example. I understand uh, the injustices that people have to live with, particularly people who are in the, of the kind of background I describe. I, I think the injustices they have to live through are political. So if you address those things, you, you address them in a way that is engaging with consequences of uh, historical injustices. So yeah, sure. Um, Natalia said, how do people in Zanzibar connect to your literature 
Although your paradise is universal, thank you for evoking kindness and humanity. I felt that while reading you. Thank you very much, Natalia. Um, I don't know, in answer to the question of how they relate, relate. I don't know if writers can know things like that. Um, uh, all I can say is that, uh, like I mentioned a moment ago, the president of Zanzibar called me to congratulate me. And I know the books are, are there and a lot of people are saying to me, when are you coming home? When are you coming back? Come back, come back, come back. But otherwise, whether books are expensive, uh, particularly published in English. I don't yet have a Swahili publisher, actually, although they are, but that's not my fault. I'm not a translator. I'm not a publisher. Uh, um, it's, um, but they haven't got one yet, so it's books in English, and they they are rather expensive. And people, and there isn't really a reading reading kind of culture. People read books because they're told to read them at school. Um, you know, they're set books, this kind of thing. And so, honestly, really, quite simply, the people who read my books in Zanzibar are tourists who come to Zanzibar and they say. Is there a writer from Zanzibar that I can read? And of course, the bookshops in Zanzibar or what there, which are for tourists, have my books, so they read them. But nonetheless, nonetheless, I have to say that when I do walk around Zanzibar, very often people say hello, and I've read your book. So, but I don't know what this signifies. So, okay, I can't answer the question in a truthful way except to say I don't really know. Um, Nandan Joshi wants to know why the title Gravel Heart? Because, because uh, it, it's a line that comes from measure for measure. Um, so I don't know how far you've got with the book, but when you get to the towards the end of the book, it's kind of explained, uh, or rather it, it might prompt you to go and read um, Measure for Measure. And uh, I don't know how much time we've got, but the moment in which the line is spoken is uh, because um, the Duke is trying to persuade the murderer whose head is going to be substituted for um, somebody else to allow his head to be cut off. And he says, no, I don't want to. Um, I'm too drunk, if I, et cetera. Anyway, so the Duke then accuses him of being uh, stone-hearted, gravel heart, stone-hearted. And um, yeah, and there's a figure in the novel who is stone-hearted in this way. So that's why I grab I think I thought it was a lovely way of speaking of um, cruelty. It's much more evocative than stone-hearted, which now we've heard too often to hear right. yeah. what it really is. Yeah. Um, Raya Feldman asked, have you ever written or been tempted to write in Swahili? And can you say more about your relationship with Swahili? Yeah, I wrote letters to my mother in Swahili, uh, but it, it was never it was never a language that um, I felt I had the same facility with. So I, I read in Swahili, I admire the people who can do it and admire the, the, the poetic uh, turns they can do Swahili. But for me, that's how it happened. You know, I can write utilitarian stuff in Swahili, but it doesn't produce poetry. Uh, in the same way as I'll, I, I'll do this again, because uh, in the same way as you can't ask, uh, you know, uh, a sprinter, have you ever thought of doing, you know, high jump? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just 
this just how it comes this is uh, this is the gift as well um and we had another question asking who are your which writers are your influences or are you influences like something <laughs> right <laughs> this, this is a very difficult question. I don't know, Camilla, if yeah. you have this question. It's a very yeah. difficult. It's a very yeah. difficult question to answer. I know people are interested, and I wish I could provide the answer. Mm. Um, but it's I, I really find it difficult to answer mm -hmm. this. It's not because I don't want to um, sort of like admit this one or that one or whatever, but it's because it changes so much and you read so much throughout your life. Mm. Uh, and I don't really know whether what I read influenced what I was doing or not. Uh, but I do know there are several writers that I admire and have admired, some of them for a while, and then you lose the pleasure of uh, that because of either um, a new book they've written, which is whatever. Um, but but it's not, I, I like to think that what I write is something which nobody else can write. So. Um, that's why I'm doing it, kind of thing. Um, but if I wanted, to, if I had to say um, writers that, that I would say writers like V.S. Naipaul, Saul Bellow, Salman Rushdie, uh, James Kudzia, Nuruddin Farah, but none of these were writers who I would have thought influenced me. I don't like to think that's what they did. I read them with admiration. How they influenced me is probably underground somewhere. <laughs> In, in some kind of unconscious or subconscious way. So it's a question it's, I can we'll, never answer. We'll, we'll, we'll throw Shakespeare in there. He pops up quite a lot. Shakespeare, Shakespeare as well, uh, Dickens. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. you know, we can go further back. Mm. I really do admire Dickens very much, um, but Shakespeare keeps appearing in my work somehow or the other. Mm. I don't know why. He does but that. He does, yeah. <laughs> he has that way about him. Um, I'm going to take um, the prerogative of, the mod of me to ask you one more question. Um, there's a line from Anita Desai that I know you've loved and you've used in your work, which is, nothing is over ever. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about how that, why that line resonates with you and whether you would apply it both to individuals and to nations. It's a beautiful line. It occurs in clear light of day and it's... Mm. A beautiful line, uh, which is all about that novel. If you haven't read it, those of you who are joining us, do please read it. Clear light of day. It's it's about how you think about memory, what you do with uh, so it's a small group of people, sisters, two sisters and a brother, and two sisters, two brothers actually. Uh, is that right? I remember. Because there was a brother. one brother who, no, two sisters and a brother. Sorry, two sisters and a brother, and the parents as well. Mm. And it's so beautifully orchestrated, and it's, it's fantastic novel. Um, but as they, but one sister is inclined to think, no, no, come on, it's all in the past. Come on, come on, come on, let's move on. Um, she's married to a diplomat and whatever. And the other sister, who's the doer one, the historian, says, no, no, nothing's over ever. And I've just so loved this insistence because it's completely true that nothing over ever in memory and in the imagination and in the consequences of these things. 
which is why it's important always to remember, to revisit, to write about these things. That's why I love it. <laughs> and I've used it. <laughs> well, I think that is a, a pretty beautiful note to end on. Uh, Abdul Razak, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your work and thank you to the Nobel Committee. No, I wanted to ask you something. I'm sorry, this yeah. question is going to follow you around your whole life. Go on. How does it feel to win the Nobel Prize? It feels really, really incredible. It's so, it's, I feel so proud and so honored. It's wonderful. Is that enough? That, that'll do. Okay. Thank you, Abdul Razak. Thank you to all of you who are listening. Thank you to the LRB and uh, hope we all meet in person in healthier time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.